Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hi, everyone. As part of the ACE Pituitary Gonadal Adrenal and Neuroendocrine Disease State Network, I wanted to extend a warm welcome to everyone who has tuned in to our podcast. Today, we will be talking about a very important topic, adrenal insufficiency. My name is Shobna Adimulam, and I'm a clinical assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, Bone and Mineral Disorders at Henry Ford Health, Detroit, Michigan. I'm an adult endocrinologist and I have a clinical and research interest in adrenal disorders. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lucinda Gruber, who is a friend and an expert in this topic. So let me introduce you to our speaker. Dr. Lucinda Gruber is an assistant professor of medicine who works in the pituitary, gonadal and adrenal subdivision at Mayo Clinic Rochester. She received a dual degree in chemical and bio logical engineering from the Kansas State University, followed by her medical degree from the University of Kansas Medical Center. She completed her internal medicine residency, internal medicine chief year, and endocrinology fellowship at Mayo Clinic Rochester. She was also awarded the Rondell G. Sprague Award during her fellowship training. She has a clinical and research interest in adrenal insufficiency and pheochromocytoma paraganglioma disorders. She has a passion for education, especially for adult learners, and enjoys teaching patients, medical students, residents, and fellows. We are very pleased to have Dr. Gruber with us today. I would like to start off with a case to tailor our discussion today. The case is of a 63-year-old woman with a background history of recurrent UTIs and osteoarthritis. She has a one-year history of intermittent nausea, more severe in the mornings, and more recently over a few months, poor appetite and decreased physical stamina. She struggles to get through her workday, often 11 to 12 hours, and fatigued in the evenings and weekends. Her primary care physician had evaluated her on several occasions for her symptoms. She had an elevated BMI at 32, but otherwise clinical examination and routine baseline labs, including thyroid function, was unremarkable. Due to her ongoing symptoms, further workup was done and an initial morning cortisol was 1.1 micrograms per deciliter drawn at 8.30 a.m. And a repeat cortisol drawn at 8.30 a.m. on another day was 3.3 micrograms per deciliter. She was then promptly referred to endocrinology for further evaluation of adrenal insufficiency. Dr. Gruber. This is likely a very common referral encountered in your clinical practice. Please talk us through what comes to your mind when you see these patients. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to be here today. It's always great to talk about adrenal insufficiency, one of my favorite subjects. You're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. This is a very common referral. We see someone who's had a couple of cortisol levels checked, has some nondescript symptoms, some nausea, some poor appetite. And really for me, when I first sit down with a patient, I like to sort through 
when the symptoms started, how long they've been going on, but especially the progression of symptoms. Are things getting better or are things getting worse? Because often with adrenal insufficiency, what you find is they've had these symptoms for a long time. And as time goes on, that cortisol level is creeping down and they get more and more symptoms as time goes on. So that's sometimes a really helpful clue for me when I'm thinking about adrenal insufficiency is getting a trajectory of how those symptoms have come on and progressed. Great. Now, as you rightfully said, the symptoms in adrenal insufficiency is very nonspecific. And it's important to kind of tease out these symptoms from the patients. So what specific signs or symptoms should one look for when a patient keeps representing to clinic that it would prompt cortisol testing in these patients? Well, it's a great question. And I, I do not envy the job of the general internist and the family medicine physician when they're seeing folks, because they're often the ones who make these referrals who first have to think about adrenal insufficiency. Things that I look out for, especially with secondary adrenal insufficiency, nausea, fatigue, loss of appetite are probably the three most common things that I hear from folks. But it can really go beyond that. Nausea often is going to be worse in the morning with or without vomiting. One thing that always gets my attention is if someone says, oh, you know, I went out to the gym and I exercised and then I vomited multiple times after I got back. Do they have symptoms that are worse after some sort of physical exertion? That's always a red flag to me in terms of very high suspicion for adrenal insufficiency. Fatigue is a common one that we hear, again, tends to be worse in the morning in patients with adrenal insufficiency. Sometimes you'll hear the story of, well, you know, it's really tough to get out of bed in the morning, but if I can make it till noon, I have a two hour window where I can get everything done and then I crash after that. So that's a pretty typical story. The appetite loss can go along with things like myalgias, just kind of almost feeling like you have the flu all the time is another common thing we hear. I often will ask people about if they've been sick in the last six months and what that sickness was like. So it's helpful to learn, you know, oh, they had a, a cold, but it actually kept them down for six days. They missed six days of work because of a, a simple cold, whereas everyone else in their family was better in a day and a half. That again, kind of tips me off to adrenal insufficiency and can be really helpful. Many patients will kind of share with you, oh, I'm dizzy, I'm lightheaded when I stand up, but it can be helpful to check orthostatic vital signs as well. So something more objective to kind of help with your assessment. I ask a lot about salt craving. If I'm thinking more about primary adrenal insufficiency, where they may have low aldosterone levels, you know, have they noticed skin tanning or darkening of the skin? That works well for Caucasian people, but for people with darker skin, sometimes you have to ask about, you know, hey, have you noticed increased darkness on the palms of your hands, kind of within the creases? I always examine the gums as well to see if those are dark as well, because for people who are darker complected, they may not notice that their skin is a lot darker when their ACTH level is high and they have primary adrenal insufficiency. Great. No, those are excellent pointers for, especially when we're evaluating them in clinic and specific questions to ask them about. Now, we briefly touched on the signs and symptoms, but if you could just kind of go over for our audience, the difference between primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency, and what are the most common causes for each of these conditions so that we'll know how to approach when we evaluate these patients. 
this is in some ways the most important thing we do, but sometimes it can be challenging to diagnose primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency, sometimes because this can be very muddy. So it's not uncommon that I will meet a patient for the first time and they may already be on glucocorticoid replacement. So sometimes kind of sorting through this can be challenging, but primary adrenal insufficiency is going to be a primary adrenal problem, meaning something is wrong with the function of the adrenal gland. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is either an issue with the hypothalamus or the pituitary. I tend to group those together. Some people will even use the term tertiary adrenal insufficiency to refer to the hypothalamus, but I tend to group both of those together. Now for primary adrenal insufficiency, you know, autoimmune adrenalitis is going to be the most common cause. Sometimes you can see like bilateral metastatic disease to the adrenal glands. You can see different medications for different cancers that can cause primary adrenal insufficiency. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is a lot more vast, can be related to a lot of different things, many of which are iatrogenic, meaning the number one cause for secondary adrenal insufficiency that we see are glucocorticoids. So patients who are on prednisone for rheumatoid arthritis, patients who are on prednisone maybe for a previous transplant, dexamethasone that's given to a lot of oncology patients these days. We can see a lot of things like that. But even among patients with asthma who are on inhaled glucocorticoids where they're using that inhaler several times a day, intranasal glucocorticoids we can see. It's less common because it's not as potent as some of the other things. Beyond glucocorticoids, we think about things like opiate medications. So there again, you know, you're thinking more about people who are on higher doses. So somewhere around 40 oral morphine equivalents is where we think that risk goes up. But there's an increasing body of evidence now that it doesn't matter so much your daily dose of an opiate medication as much as your cumulative dose. So I'll think about adrenal insufficiency in someone who's on 10 or 20 milligrams of oxycodone if they've been on that medication for 10 years and they're having concerning symptoms. More rare things that we think about with uh, secondary adrenal insufficiency, things like immune checkpoint inhibitors, we're seeing a lot of those now. Many referrals from our oncology colleagues, especially when we're thinking about immune checkpoint inhibitors that are used in combination. So ipilimumab and nivolumab in particular is pretty, pretty toxic to those little ACTH producing cells in the pituitary. Many of the patients I see in my clinical practice, I'm a pituitary doctor, so I see a lot of patients with pituitary adenomas, with secondary adrenal insufficiency, craniopharyngiomas, meningiomas that have grown in the cella that basically have kind of pushed on the normal healthy pituitary gland and the patient has developed secondary adrenal insufficiency. So you can see it kind of runs the whole gamut in terms of things we can see. That was all very excellent pointers on medication. I just wanted to touch on exogenous glucocorticoids. At what dose and duration of use of exogenous glucocorticoids that we should be concerned about a patient developing secondary adrenal insufficiency? Oh, it's a great question. And unfortunately, I don't have a, a solid answer for you because the the world of glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency is a little bit untapped, despite being a, a very common scenario we see in clinical practice. It depends on who you ask in terms of what, what answer you'll get to this. Generally, I start to get more concerned for adrenal insufficiency when someone has been on superphysiologic doses of glucocorticoids for more than, you know, 
two to four weeks. Some of it does depend what dose they're on. So if they're on eight milligrams of dexamethasone for four weeks, that's such a huge dose. I'm going to be very concerned about that patient, even at the end of three weeks, as opposed to someone who's on, you know, maybe prednisone five milligrams for a few weeks time. Um, but there is a lot of debate about when we should start to think about adrenal insufficiency, how high that risk would be. The other thing I'll say is that many of these patients fly under the radar. So they may be getting steroids through perhaps like a rheumatologist for rheumatoid arthritis and ophthalmologist for, you know, giant cell arteritis. So many of these patients likely have some time that they have adrenal insufficiency after their, their glucocorticoids are stopped and we're just not capturing that. And they're probably just flying under the radar. But generally, if they've been on super physiologic doses for, for some time, I, I start to think about adrenal insufficiency. Yeah. And in our patient, upon further questioning by the endocrinologist, it was apparent that she was receiving intra-articular glucocorticoid injections at an external facility different from her primary care physician for osteoarthritis at three to six monthly intervals over the one to two years. So the patient was not aware of the systemic side effects related to intra-articular injections. And, you know, this is a common scenario we see in clinics. And I think it's important to also highlight that these intra-articular glucocorticoid injections can last in our system up to three to six months. And it should be specifically teased out when we are questioning patients for exogenous glucocorticoid use. Now, could you touch on what's the best timing to evaluate patients for their cortisol level when you suspect a clinical picture for adrenal insufficiency? This is another challenge. Unlike in the textbooks where everyone wakes up at 7 a.m. and we check their cortisol at 8 a.m., we know in real life that is not how life works. We want to check the cortisol as soon as we can after a patient wakes up. That's really the, the thing we're trying to do. Our cortisol is highest first thing in the morning when we wake up. I always describe it to patients as cortisol is our get up and go hormone. So it's the hormone that kind of gets us jump started. So that's when we want to be checking it. We want to see what is the maximum cortisol level they can produce in the morning when they wake up. For some of my patients, that's going to be eight o'clock in the morning because maybe that's when they're headed to work. For many of my younger patients, especially college students, that may be closer to noon. And so it's really important when I order the cortisol level, I'll be sort of specific in my instructions in terms like this is when I want you to get this level checked. We'll set it up for this time to make sure we're checking it at the best time possible. And the same is true of the ACTH. So when we're thinking about that next step of rechecking a cortisol, assessing with an ACTH, we want to be sure that we're checking at that time. I run into this not infrequently with nurses who are doing shift work. Sometimes finding what their normal diurnal pattern is, is so challenging. So for patients like that, often what I'll do is try and figure out, well, what's the longest amount of time you're on the same schedule? So if you're working five nights in a row, we're going to wait until that fifth night when you wake up to go to work and check your cortisol on that day. Or if they have a week of vacation coming up where they know they're going to be on the same sleep-wake cycle, I'll do the same thing. But this can be quite a challenge sometimes. It sounds very simple on paper, but in day-to-day -day life, it can be really challenging. Those are very good pointers, especially in patients with shift work. It's very hard to assess their access and when is the best timing to actually evaluate their cortisol levels. Now, in our patient, 
as you had mentioned, her further labs were done and she had a low normal ACTH level and a low DHEAS level too. Now, could you elaborate a bit more on the use of DHEAS measurements in assessing patients with adrenal insufficiency? You know, ACTH is going to be our most helpful test to sort out, is this primary or secondary? But to me, DHEAS is my favorite tool <laughs> when I'm assessing for adrenal insufficiency. I almost use it as a dynamic test in and of itself. What DHEAS tells me is how much ACTH on average the adrenal gland is seeing over maybe half to a full day. So DHEA comes from the adrenal gland. It's released in response to ACTH from the pituitary. So it relies on that same signal. But because it's such a longer acting hormone, we get a better snapshot of how much ACTH that patient is seeing. DHEAS can be a very, very helpful hormone in some of those patients, like the shift workers I mentioned, where their cortisol, their diurnal variation may be a little bit of a moving target. If you check a DHEAS level and it's really robust. So for instance, in premenopausal women and men, I tend to use 100 micrograms per deciliter and above as a number that reassures me that they likely do not have adrenal insufficiency. If it's less than 50, I'm a little bit more suspicious. In postmenopausal women, DHEAS to me is a little bit trickier. It's just harder to interpret because the, the DHEA is coming from both the ovary as well as the adrenal. So in postmenopausal women, because they've gone through menopause, their DHEAS levels are just naturally going to be lower. So sometimes that's not the most helpful clue for me in postmenopausal women. If it's above 50, I feel pretty comfortable that that's reassuring, but it, it's rare to find a postmenopausal woman with or without adrenal insufficiency who has a DHEAS level that high. So probably most helpful for me in, in premenopausal women and in men. Yeah. And I think it's, as you rightfully said, it's important to highlight that DHEAS has an age and gender specific range. And like you said, it's typically highest in young and premenopausal women. But most labs do not report an age and gender specific range. It's really helpful that the Mayo Clinic lab provides age and gender specific ranges and it is available on their website as a referral guide for everyone when evaluating these patients. Now, in our patient, we have a very clear picture of secondary adrenal insufficiency. She has exogenous glucocorticoid exposure, low cortisol, low ACTH, and low DHEAS. But in some patients, like you rightfully said, it's not always that clear cut. What further dynamic testing would you recommend in order to support the diagnosis in adrenal insufficiency in these patients? It's a really good question. Um, you know, when, when do I pull out that dynamic test from my back pocket and use it for a patient? Nine times out of 10, if they have a concerning clinical history, I have a potential mechanism, labs support the diagnosis, and my suspicion is pretty high, I tend to use a therapeutic trial of hydrocortisone as my way of kind of assessing for whether or not they have adrenal insufficiency. So I'll give them 10 milligrams of hydrocortisone for a week. I'll plan to meet back with them a week later and say, okay, what changed? If someone has true adrenal insufficiency, we see a really pretty robust improvement. I would say clinically, it's one of the funnest things to treat because someone comes back and they're like, wow, I have my life back with this little tablet that I take once a day. 
So sometimes that can be really helpful if I have a high suspicion for adrenal insufficiency. Many patients, you know, it may be a bit murkier depending on the clinical situation. And that's where the, the true dynamic tests are helpful. ACTH stimulation tests, so where you give either a small dose of ACTH1 microgram or a standard dose 250 micrograms of ACTH um, can be helpful. You're going to measure their cortisol at baseline 30 minutes, 60 minutes, and you expect to see that cortisol go up. Um, that can be a helpful test for primary adrenal insufficiency. I find that I don't rely on it in my patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency because it lacks sensitivity. So if it's an abnormal test, it's helpful. I can say, yes, this patient has adrenal insufficiency. You know, if it's normal, then I'm kind of stuck in this situation of, well, am I reassured by this test? Knowing that an ACTH stimulation test has a sensitivity of about 64% in secondary adrenal insufficiency. And often I find that I'm not reassured by that normal test and I need to do more testing anyway, which is why I often will skip the ACTH stimulation test when I'm thinking secondary adrenal insufficiency. The other thing that I didn't mention, there's some debate now about, well, what should our optimum cutoff for cortisol be for something like an ACTH stimulation test? We at Mayo, we tend to use a little bit higher cutoff, but there are some folks that have advocated for you know, our cortisol immunoassay is so good now. It's so specific that we could actually use a lower cutoff of 14 for some of our dynamic tests at this point. The other thing that I will mention, a dynamic test that I don't use a lot. We can use an insulin tolerance test. That's available at some of your, your larger academic institutions. It's very unpleasant for patients, so I don't tend to use that much these days. I do use a materipone stimulation test if I am in a situation where I think there's some adrenal insufficiency there. I'm not quite certain. I'm not confident enough to do a therapeutic trial. And that's for a patient where their cortisol level is somewhere between 5 and 10 then a materipone stimulation test can be helpful. And that's where you give the patient a weight-based dose of materipone, which is going to block the final step in the cortisol synthesis pathway. So you're basically giving them low cortisol. And then you measure an 11-deoxycortisol the next morning along with a cortisol level. So the cortisol is basically to prove you gave them low cortisol, that the materipone did its job. And then the 11-deoxycortisol, we expect to see a really robust level, basically telling us that the pituitary could sense that low cortisol, send out a really strong signal to the adrenal gland, and then that raised the 11-deoxycortisol level. So those are kind of the dynamic tests that I think about. But in clinical practice, I would say therapeutic trial of hydrocortisone is really my go-to. Yeah, and I agree. And a lot of times people are apprehensive about just starting hydrocortisone, but a therapeutic trial for a short period to see if the patient improves clinically probably does the most benefit to them. Now, moving on to management of patients with adrenal insufficiency, Dr. Gruber, how do you typically do glucocorticoid replacement in these patients? So I prefer to use hydrocortisone. I would say oof, probably 95% of my patients, that's what I use. I like it because it's a shorter acting steroid and we can dose it somewhere between one to three times a day and help mimic the normal pattern of cortisol. So that's why I choose hydrocortisone. 
the right dose of hydrocortisone is not entirely clear. You know this, you know, you look at a patient, you can't really predict necessarily what they will need, but somewhere between 10 to 30 milligrams of hydrocortisone is a typical dose. For most of my women, I'll start somewhere between 15 milligrams a day and 20 milligrams a day. Most men, I'll start somewhere between 20 and 25 milligrams. And the hydrocortisone itself can, as I said, be given somewhere between one to three times a day. I'll usually start out with twice daily dosing and go from there. But one of the things that I want to urge everyone to think about is you need to be reassessing these patients fairly frequently when they've been started on hydrocortisone to make sure that they're not having wearing off effects, to make sure that they're not becoming cushionoid and we're giving them too much hydrocortisone. Most patients, because I'm doing twice a day to start out, I give the biggest dose in the morning. So somewhere like 10 to 15 milligrams in the morning when they wake up. And then I give another dose about six to seven hours later. So usually around a five milligram dose then in, in the afternoon. And we do that again to mimic the normal diurnal variation of cortisol, where we get that big peak in the morning, we get a smaller peak in the afternoon. But the other thing that's really important to emphasize to patients is that we don't want them taking that second dose right before they go to bed because it will interfere with their sleep. Also, they'll have a whole afternoon where they're not getting any glucocorticoids, so they tend to feel pretty crummy. They get that nice boost in the morning, but then they're kind of crashing in the afternoon. So I'm always very careful to educate my patients why we dose the way that we do, because they're more likely to remember if they understand why we're doing something. Great. Now, could you touch on if fludocortisone is needed as a replacement for these patients? And is there actually a role for DHEA supplementation? Yeah, so for fludrocortisone, that's really just needed in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency. So with fludrocortisone, we're replacing aldosterone hormone from the adrenal gland. In secondary adrenal insufficiency, we don't need an aldosterone replacement. Aldosterone is an ACTH independent hormone. So in secondary adrenal insufficiency, where it's just a signaling issue from the pituitary, no fludrocortisone is needed. For DHEA, I do offer that to all of my female patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency. So I mentioned that DHEA can come from the ovary or the adrenal gland. In many women with secondary adrenal insufficiency, their DHEA-S level is going to be very, very low. And so to me, it makes sense to replace DHEA. I have some women who swear by it that it really made a difference in terms of their cognition, libido, just in general, and their kind of sense of well-being, that I think it's worth trying in all women with secondary adrenal insufficiency. If they try it for a few months, they don't feel any different, they're finding it, it's a huge hassle to take the supplement, then I think it's reasonable to stop. Likewise, if you give them DHEA, you know, it's a kind of a testosterone-like hormone if they're having acne, oily skin, hirsutism. Again, same story, you know, you can stop the supplement, but I think it's a reasonable thing to try in women. I don't use it in men because there are much stronger testosterone and androgen-like hormones in men, but in women, I think it can be quite helpful. Yeah. And these DHEA supplementation is available over the counter in most drugstores and mm -hmm it's worth a try to see if it actually helps and improves with their systems. And typically you said you give a trial over how long a period? Yeah, I'll do somewhere around two to three months. Usually in the beginning, I'm seeing patients back every three months to kind of assess how they're doing with the hydrocortisone. So I kind of work that into my normal 
follow-up. I usually start most women on 25 milligrams a day, but some women may need a little bit more than that. I do check a level, a DHEAS level, trying to get that kind of into the middle of the normal range. Now, one thing I didn't say and probably should for, for this audience, we are giving them a DHEA supplement, but we're measuring a DHEAS level. So we're measuring the, the sulfated level just because it's a little bit more stable in the blood, but it's certainly reasonable to check a level and make sure we're not giving them massive doses of DHEA. Great. I'm sure you'll agree with me that once we're done with diagnosing them and treating them, then comes the big part of actually managing these patients with adrenal insufficiency and patient education, empowering them with the knowledge to actually manage their disorders is a big part of managing these patients. Now, what do you typically tell your patients about sick day management or stress dosing? I totally agree with you. <laughs> this is a challenge, but I also think this is really one of the fun parts of our job. So really educating our patients well, advocating for our patients. For sick day rules, I will actually educate basically every three months for the first year that someone is diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency because it's so important. What we're trying to do with, with sick day rules or stress dosing is basically increase the amount of hydrocortisone that someone's getting when they're sick. So basically trying to mimic what the body would naturally do if they did not have secondary adrenal insufficiency. So you're sick, you need more cortisol. If you're sick, we're going to give you more hydrocortisone. Most of my patients, I will ask them to double their dose of hydrocortisone. So if they're on 10 milligrams in the morning, five milligrams in the afternoon, we'll increase that to 20 milligrams and 10 milligrams. I ask them to do that for three days or until they're feeling better. And I put that addition on there because especially in the days of COVID, we're finding that some people are sick for a week and a half with a COVID infection and they're needing that stress dosing for a longer time. What I found was that many of my patients were nervous to do that. They thought they were going to cause themselves harm by, by stress dosing for a longer time. Another thing that I emphasize is always, if you have questions, you should call us. So I think leaving that line of communication open for patients newly diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency can be quite helpful. Now, the hydrocortisone and increasing the dose is only helpful if they're able to take the tablets. So it's a matter of most of our patients, we will teach how to give an intramuscular injection, a rescue medication, if they're vomiting and they're not able to take their hydrocortisone tablets, if they were to lose consciousness. So, uh, you know, a loved one could give them an intramuscular injection. I always tell patients, even if you're going to the emergency room, be sure and take that injection before you go, because it may be three or four hours before you can see a provider in an emergency room and three to four hours in someone who has adrenal insufficiency is too long to wait for more glucocorticoid. So I'll say, you know, take the injection, get to the emergency room just so that they're covered for a time while they're waiting to be evaluated. Yeah, no, those are really great pointers. And I find that when I'm teaching or talking to patients about stress dosing, one visit is typically not enough. You need to bring them back every month. And usually when they're new to the diagnosis, I tell them to come back with a family member so that mm -hmm. someone else in the household is also aware of what needs to be done. Now, we have established that in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency, they need glucocorticoid and fluidocortisone replacement for life. But in patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency, especially those with a chance of their hypothalamic pituitary axis to recover, 
how common does this occur and how do you go about testing for recovery? It's a great question. And I think one of the challenges of treating, especially glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency is trying to anticipate when that signaling will wake back up. So I, I generally, if someone is tapering off of their glucocorticoids, so they're on 20 milligrams of prednisone, they've tapered down to five milligrams of prednisone, I will put them then on hydrocortisone. So I'll transition from prednisone to hydrocortisone. And then I generally wait somewhere between six to 12 weeks to recheck a morning cortisol level. And I'll check a morning cortisol level every six to 12 weeks for the first year, thinking that at some point that signaling will improve. I'm always surprised by some patients where I think it's going to be a really long time for them to recover. And then six months down the road, their morning cortisol looks fantastic. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, your, your axis has recovered. We'll stop your hydrocortisone. And then likewise, there are other patients where I think it's going to be pretty quick and it's not. So at this point, I don't have a great clinical predictor for saying who's going to recover more quickly than others. I will say that some patients, if they're on a big whopping dose of glucocorticoids for 20 or 30 years, there's a possibility they may not recover. And I'm pretty upfront with my patients about that. You know, hey, we'll check for this. But if we're a year and a half, two years down the road, your cortisol is still one. There may be a point in time where we just say, you know, it's unlikely this is going to recover and get better. That's with glucocorticoids. I would say with opiates, things are more predictable. So tapering opiates, we actually see a pretty good recovery in most patients within the first six months. The tough things with tapering opiates is that that can be really hard for a patient. It can be kind of a tough time as they go off of their opiate pain medications. So one of the challenges I would say is six months down the road, when their morning cortisol looks fantastic and you're like, oh, you don't have adrenal insufficiency anymore. It can be a tough situation for a patient because they kind of see that hydrocortisone is their lifeline now that they're off of their opiate pain medication. So really reassuring them that, you know, everything is working exactly as it should. We're okay to, to stop the medication. I generally use a morning cortisol of 10 or above as kind of my threshold for when to stop the hydrocortisone. That's something that's a little bit debated, but it's a cortisol level that we use for patients recovering from Cushing's. And so that's why to me, it makes sense to use a similar cutoff for adrenal insufficiency. I have all of my patients continue to stress dose for a year after their axis has recovered. So I don't necessarily do like an ACTH stimulation test or anything like that. I just say, you know what, for the next year, if you get sick, stress dose, and then after a year, you would be okay. But there may be situations where again, you know, someone's been on glucocorticoids for a really long time. And I'm not going to feel confident that they can respond in a time of sickness in the, the next you know, few years. So I may continue to have them stress dose for a bit longer. Excellent. I just want to take some time to focus on a special group where diagnosis and management of any disorder for that matter can be pretty tricky. Pregnancy. So cortisol value cutoffs that we typically use in clinical practice do not apply to this group because of the physiological changes that can occur at every trimester in their pregnancy. How would you proceed with testing for adrenal insufficiency if it's suspected in pregnancy? And how would your management differ? Oh, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. It is really challenging. So 
the normal range that we have for cortisol just goes out the window because those high estrogen levels during pregnancy are going to raise the cortisol binding globulin. So total cortisol is going to shift up. Even free cortisol will increase throughout pregnancy just as part of the natural process. So it does become a bit of a moving target when you're thinking about adrenal insufficiency in someone who's pregnant. I will add that many of the symptoms of adrenal insufficiency overlap with pregnancy. So nausea and fatigue being some of them. We are somewhat fortunate in the, the secondary adrenal insufficiency world that many women are going to be diagnosed prior to pregnancy. You know, it's some sort of pituitary insult. Maybe they had a craniopharyngioma as a kid, so they have known adrenal insufficiency. But if you find you're in a position where you are thinking about adrenal insufficiency in a woman who's pregnant, both to total and free cortisol levels should be interpreted very cautiously because we don't have great normal ranges. So even though a total cortisol may look reassuring, you need to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of the cortisol binding globulin during pregnancy? One thing we do have that's helpful is that an ACTH stimulation test is safe to administer during pregnancy. So that's certainly a possibility. If it's not entirely clear what those baseline levels are, you can do an ACTH stimulation test. There are some established cutoffs that are in the literature, one of which shows up in our recent article, but something to look out for in terms of kind of figuring out first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester cutoffs for, for the ACTH stimulation test. In terms of how I treat them differently if they are pregnant, so let's say it's a patient with known adrenal insufficiency, in the first and second trimester, I generally don't adjust their medications. Sometimes I will have them stress dose their hydrocortisone if they're having a lot of morning sickness. Some patients will need to use their rescue medication, their intramuscular injection, if they're not able to keep their hydrocortisone down. In the third trimester, then I generally increase their hydrocortisone by around 30%. Kind of varies among experts. Some will do more like 20%, some more like 40 or 50%. I increase the hydrocortisone because we know the need is going to increase in the later part of pregnancy. But for me, you know, giving a pregnant woman iatrogenic cushings and exposing the, the fetus to excess glucocorticoids can be quite detrimental. And so that's why I kind of shoot somewhere in the middle of that 20 to 50% range. So I increase by about 30%. One thing we didn't talk about, if it's a woman with primary adrenal insufficiency, she may require fludrocortisone adjustment as well throughout pregnancy. So I tend to watch that very closely with, with regular potassium checks as the pregnancy goes on. Dr. Gruber, this has been a very informative session and thank you again. For our audience's benefit, could you give us a few take-home points that you would like to reinforce for anyone that is evaluating a patient with adrenal insufficiency? I have a few little pearls, but I would say number one is asking a patient about their normal day-wake patterns when you're interpreting their cortisol level, because nine times out of 10, it was not checked at the right time. And just checking it at a different time, you can find their cortisol level looks perfect. Asking about illness and prostration after really demanding like physical exercise or really a very demanding day can be sometimes a helpful way to sort out the risk of someone having adrenal insufficiency. So if they exercise and they vomit for three hours afterwards, that to me raises my suspicion for adrenal insufficiency. The other thing I will say, always check an ACTH level. And if you can do it before they're on glucocorticoid treatment, 
so much the better. But sorting out if it's a primary or a secondary issue is so important and sometimes gets overlooked when someone is in the hospital and we're thinking about adrenal insufficiency. But that's important because it's going to dictate how we manage that patient and if we need to image their head, if we need to image their adrenal glands. Um, and beyond that, I would say the, the, the really big take-home point is that we need to be educating our patients well for sick day rules because we're not at home with them when they have the flu. So we need to give them the tools and the confidence to adjust their hydrocortisone when they're sick and to know when to use that intramuscular injection. All very important points. I hope everyone has learned as much as I have from this session or reinforced further on what you already know. For our audience, if you'd like to read more on this topic, there's an excellent review article on secondary adrenal insufficiency by Dr. Gruber and Dr. Irina Bankos, published in the ACE Endocrine Practice Journal, January 2022. Dr. Gruber, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about this topic and addressing all our questions. All right. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.